Hello and welcome to the XRCPE podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Sutherland. I'm an acute medic, ST7 trainee in the southeast of Scotland. Today I will be talking to Professor Dennis, who, amongst other things, is a stroke consultant at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, but he's also a stroke researcher at the University of Edinburgh. And the focus of today's podcast is going to be looking at the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic on services such as stroke. So welcome, Professor Dennis, and thank you for joining us today. Hello. So good morning, Prof. And my first question is really about how COVID-19 is affecting what you're seeing in terms of the acute stroke service. A couple of folk have asked, you know, we're sort of seeing generally less medical patients coming in. So are you seeing less? Are you, are you doing less stroke thrombolysis? Is it having an effect in those ways? Like other services, I think we have seen quite a drop off in the numbers of patients presenting with stroke-like symptoms, both through the ED departments and to their GPs. We haven't got enough information yet from data to know for sure how much that reduction has occurred, but uh, it seems quite a lot at the moment. And we've talked uh, with physicians across the UK and their experience is very similar. Whether it's reducing the number of patients with severe stroke who are presenting, who probably the most obvious patients who would be thrombolized is not yet clear. We hope not, but obviously there are concerns and that has led to the UK-wide campaign by the Stroke Association to try and encourage patients to present with stroke-like sim symptoms as they would have done before, in the knowledge that they will receive hyperacute treatments such as thrombolysis uh, as usual. It depends where one is in the country about the impact that COVID will be having on stroke services and their ability to deliver hyperacute treatments. Uh, I think in most parts of the country, there's no uh, negative impact. Indeed, in many parts where there's relatively few COVID cases, and we're at the moment in the waiting phase, waiting for a surge in cases, then ED departments are relatively quiet. Uh, stroke teams may be relatively quiet and be able to react quickly to call for thrombolysis. Obviously, in those hospitals which uh, have very high demand from the COVID side of things, some of their staff will have been redeployed away from stroke services and into other services, and that may be making it more difficult to deliver hyperacute care. There's certainly a move towards where that is occurring, supporting those hospitals into continuing to deliver thrombolysis and potentially thrombectomy by offering remote support by telemedicine from other places that are less affected. And certainly people are being encouraged to network between hospitals and between regions to allow that to continue to happen. So at the moment, it's unclear whether there's a, a reduction in the number of patients being given hyperacute treatments, and it isn't clear yet whether there's a change in door to needle time. That's absolutely fascinating. It's good to know there's a lot of work going on in the background to try and mitigate any potential impact on patient care. And it, I think we'll give a link at the end of the podcast to that uh, stroke association that you highlighted, because I think that's really important for us to be aware of as clinicians as well. There are also documents being produced both in NHS England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, which uh, tries to describe the response of stroke services to the COVID crisis and really 
explains how we are attempting to reduce the impact on our services and, and optimise the outcomes of our patients, despite the challenges we face. That's really good to hear. And I know that dual antiplatelet therapy is a hot topic in stroke at the moment. And there's been sort of, well, last year there was a BMJ rapid review. And I know that's changed sort of my practice and I was working with, with yourself at the time. And I'm just wondering if that's changing how you're you're practicing and, and advising, perhaps using more sort of telemedicine techniques. Are, are you able to get the message about dual antiplatelets out there a bit more? And are you advising a bit more comfortably sort of over the phone for them to start? Clearly, uh, antiplatelet drugs, either aspirin or clopidogrel, are key to reducing the risk of disabling stroke after a TIA or minor ischemic event. Nowadays, uh, when we take calls from general practitioners or ED departments about a patient who's had a, a TIA or minor ischemic stroke, we recommend loading them immediately with an antiplatelet drug, usually 300 milligrams of either of them, and continuing uh, on a lower dose of 75 milligrams to reduce their risk. The risk of having an a stroke after a TIA is much higher in the first few days and then tends to tail off after a few weeks or months. So the benefits of treatment are much greater. Also, Pete Rothwell's work, which was published in The Lancet about three or four years ago, indicated that the absolute and the relative benefits of antiplatelet drugs were increased in the first 12 weeks. So that whereas in the longer term, aspirin reduces the risk by about a fifth, it probably halves the risk in the first few weeks after an event. So it's a really worthwhile treatment. We would be recommending that people start on it as, as quickly as possible after an event. And then they can be investigated to refine the approach to secondary prevention with things like anticoagulation if AF is detected or carotid endarterectomy if they have carotid stenosis. The randomized trials testing whether a combination of aspirin and clopidogrel may be better than aspirin or clopidogrel alone in TIA and minor ischemic stroke have changed things dramatically in the last uh, couple of years. The trials definitely show that the risk of recurrence is reduced in the first three weeks. So the recommendation now is that we should be using dual antiplatelet therapy for between 10 days and three weeks in patients with what are recommended to be high-risk TIAs or minor ischemic strokes. That's with an NIH stroke scale of less, uh, three or less. Uh, high-risk TIAs are generally ones in older patients, those affecting uh, particularly motor or speech function, those which last longer than a few seconds or minutes, might be occurring in, say, a diabetic or those with very high blood pressure. Some people use the ABCD2 score to, to describe what a high and low uh, risk TIA is. The issue about whether we are recommending dual antiplatelet therapy in the world of uh, virtual assessments, uh, which we're now undertaking a lot in with since COVID-19 has made the delivery of face-to-face -face clinics more difficult, is a tricky one. In the trials which led to us to adopt dual antiplatelet therapy, all the patients received CT brains or MRI brain scans before we started dual antiplatelet therapy. That isn't generally uh, required if one's uh, starting a single antiplatelet drug. 
for just a day or two before one gets a scan done, we're mostly fairly comfortable with starting single antiplatelet therapy without a brain scan. But I don't think we're quite as comfortable at the moment in doing so with dual antiplatelet therapy, especially when there may be a, a significant delay to getting a brain scan and that might lead the patient to being on prolonged treatment uh, inappropriately. There are very rare occurrences of patients presenting as a TIA or minor ischemic stroke, but actually have had a some form of intracranial bleeding. Subdural hematomas can sometimes mimic TIAs perfect. And we are seeing a small number of patients with what's called small convexity subarachnoid hemorrhage, where the symptoms can be those of TIA or minor ischemic stroke, but actually the scan shows a small amount of bleeding in the sulci over the convexity of the hemispheres. We don't think that uh, those patients should be on prolonged antiplatelet therapy, and we worry a little bit about them being given dual antiplatelet therapy, but I think we have to just watch this space. I suspect we will start dual antiplatelet therapy in some patients without a scan, where we're particularly worried about their short-term risk of uh, stroke. That's really helpful to link the evidence to the clinical decision-making. And I think that that answer dovetails nicely into my next question, which is about managing the TIA clinics from a telemedicine perspective. Having worked within your service and with yourself, I know that you're very experienced in telephone consultations, but that varies quite a lot between clinicians. And I just wonder whether this has given you and, and your service the opportunity to develop the telemedicine side of things more. And do you see that persevering going forwards if that's been the case? Yes, we've generally used telephone consultations to deal with the challenge of having a, a very large number of referrals from GPs and emergency departments for patients with possible TIAs and minor ischemic strokes, and only having a limited capacity within our clinics to see them all. So we've triaged them in general over the last few years to seeing some in clinic who need to get in several investigations done, for instance, to refine their, their diagnosis or their treatment decisions. But occasionally, uh, patients uh, will need to be examined. But in fact, most of the diagnosis is based on the history, past history, which is available to us remotely. And the examination tends to add rather little to the management of these patients. So we've, for a number of years, used telephone consultations where we can't see everybody. We can make uh, very clear uh, diagnoses of some of the stroke mimics, such as migraine aura with or without headache. So we've been happy using telephone consultations. Now with the, the challenges of running face-to-face -face clinics, not wishing to bring elderly patients up to the hospital, drawing them out of their safe environment at home where they've been self-isolating. We are using the telephone consultation much, much more. Indeed, in the last fortnight, uh, where we would have seen probably 50 patients in our clinic, we have seen none. We have brought patients up to the hospital, having taken a full history, written a letter. We have then arranged for them to have outpatient investigations promptly. But by doing it that way round, they're exposed to far fewer individuals and therefore less risk of contracting COVID. The current crisis has certainly made it easier for clinicians to start to experiment with other options as well, which can enhance this. So 
the NHS X, uh, who oversee IT use in NHS England, have suggested that use of technologies such as FaceTime and WhatsApp, uh, amongst others, uh, might be used to allow us to uh, have video conferencing with patients in their own home. Uh, and some of us have found this to be useful, especially uh, as one can do uh, a simple neurological examination uh, using those techniques. Many of my colleagues are very experienced in doing this in support of their throm remote thrombolysis and telestroke services. So that is certainly something which is uh, positive that's come out of the current crisis. And I would expect that many people will be becoming much more comfortable with telephone consultations, video conferencing consultations going forward, and will continue to do this and, and provide better uh, services for their patients. I think the other thing which we're just experimenting with is the giving patients bespoke information. Normally, when one is in the clinic, we are limited rather to, to talking to our patients about their diagnosis and their prognosis and their treatment. And we might have some off-the-shelf leaflets to hand the patient. But I think now we're doing this remotely. We can't obviously hand the patient a leaflet, but we do have the opportunity of sending them information which is written down. And we're experimenting with this, but using slides, we're able to tailor the information precisely to the individual patient's problems and not burden them with other information which might be included, for instance, in a standard leaflet, which is irrelevant to them. So I think that's another advantage uh, that we might be able to build on uh, even after the COVID crisis has passed. So you're, you're able to personalise the information, I guess. So you're distilling the pertinent research information that applies to that patient in respect to their diagnosis and their prognosis by selecting slides from a stack for an individualised patient. Is, is that how that works? Yes, that does. And, uh, you know, it seems to be well appreciated. We've had positive feedback from the, the, the relatively small numbers who we've done it for. But it's helped them understand what we've been saying to them on the phone. That sounds like a fantastic innovation. And I, I suspect something that, for example, general practice would be incredibly keen to develop for a number of things. But it's, it's interesting that that's being able to work for you, you know, in the current climate. So that's really positive. I know that you work in a team that has integrated research sort of as part of its core. And I, I wondered how, how COVID, the COVID pandemic specifically is affecting your ability to undertake research into stroke and its associated diseases. Well, certainly um, at the moment, there is uh, no recruitment into trials of patients with stroke or TIA unless they're trials to do with COVID. So most, I think, uh, research departments in collaboration with the NHS have stopped recruitment into trials of non-COVID conditions. Now, some of these maybe have specific relevance to stroke, but uh, most of them are much broader, answering broader questions about treatment of COVID. This has allowed the research community to focus on the crisis, and hopefully that research will be producing answers about how COVID spreads and how we can reduce its uh, impacts on patients and improve outcomes. As far as stroke trials are concerned, those that have recruited patients uh, up to this point are being encouraged to follow those patients up and keep them within their protocols and to measure their outcomes. So hopefully it won't 
impact adversely on those trials other than to perhaps delay recruitment. I think research is ongoing for stroke, but a hiatus in recruitment of new patients. And let's hope the hiatus doesn't last too long. Um, are there any specific messages that you would like to get out there to the general public and general physicians and acute physicians like myself surrounding you know, patients that might be presenting with stroke disease? You mentioned earlier the Stroke Association are doing a program at the moment to highlight the need to come in with fast symptoms. Is there anything you'd like to say personally on that matter? Yes, I think, uh, I think that's a very important um, piece of work to ensure that patients don't miss out on really effective early treatments for uh, stroke and TIA. I think that the public will be very aware of the changes in the way health services are delivering. And uh, although they may call an ambulance, it may be uh, that the ambulance staff will be actually speaking to the hospital while they're at the patient's home to work out the best care for that patient, whether it's an emergency run to the emergency department to get thrombolized or whether it's uh, actually to stay where they are and the ambulance service would arrange for them to be assessed remotely by stroke services uh, to, for instance, start early secondary prevention or to reassure them that actually what they've had isn't a stroke or TIA. So I think that's another thing which is being brought in in some parts of the UK, this uh, what's called in Scotland professional to professional guidance for the ambulance service. Uh, and that's just being trialled in some areas, but may well be rolled out both to other areas in stroke, but also other areas of medicine to avoid unnecessary attendances at the ED department. But I think the overall message is that uh, stroke services, uh, albeit in a slightly different shape, are open and delivering care and that care can be as good as it's ever been in many circumstances. It's great to have support from other groups of clinicians, uh, general physicians, ED consultants and junior staff. Neurologists are now helping to ensure that stroke services are supported and can continue their, their business. Clearly, many stroke physicians come from a background of either acute medicine, uh, general medicine or geriatric medicine. And those specialties are under immense pressure during the COVID crisis. And many uh, staff who normally are doing most of their work in stroke are now contributing to looking after patients with uh, COVID in their wards. And so they, the services for stroke do need support from others to continue. That's been really helpful to talk to you today, Prof. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. It's been a really incredible whirlwind through the research world and translating that into clinical practice. So thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you.